be seated, please. Well, good morning once again. Um, as Burke mentioned, Easter is coming, and we want to remind you as a part of this church, our purpose here is to engage our community with the love of Jesus. And you have a great chance and opportunity to invest in the life of people that God has placed around you and invite them to be a part of this. And there is a great day. Um, Easter is a great opportunity for you to invite someone to church because so many people are looking for a place to go on Easter Sunday. Um, It's an easy invitation. Invite them to come join us. Because one of the things that I believe um, very strongly is if we cannot get them here, we cannot teach them. And so I, I think use these opportunities that we have to invite people to come share in our celebration as we celebrate resurrection. So invest and invite. You should have received a little card Um, reminding you of that, that you can pass out to people around you and invite them to come join us um, Easter Sunday. So over the last several weeks, we've been in a series um, called I Believe in God, But, because one of the things that I've encountered so many times and so frequently is people who say, well, I believe there is a God, I believe God is, uh, is real, that he's alive, that he's doing things, but then I have these questions, what is he doing about evil? And if God is good, if God is loving, if God is kind, if God is compassionate, then why do we still see evil in this world? And one of the things I've asked you to do in this series is to kind of push back against your simple church answers that you've always um, turned to. And to look a little bit deeper at the problem of evil and what God is doing about it. So... Um, the very first week, one of the things we said was that the line of evil, we, we tend to think line of evil runs between us and them. There's us who is good, there's us who is right, there's us, and then there's them, and them, they are evil, and they are wrong, and they're bad. But one of the things I hope you see is the line of evil is not between us and them, But the line of good and evil runs through the heart of each and every one of us. And last week we looked at the world that God created, His good creation, that He spoke into existence through His Word. And the world that He created that was transformed by His creation. A world that was full of selfishness and arrogance and corruption and wickedness, rebellion, blame, jealousy and anger. This world that was recreated by God's good creation. And because of that, God begins this new group of people, a new tribe, and He calls them out, and He says, I'm going to make you different. I'm going to set you apart, and you are going to exist for the purpose of blessing the rest of the world. The reason you're going to exist is not going to be to take care of yourself. But it's going to be to bless the world. But the question that comes is what happens when the solution to the problem becomes part of the problem. Because what we see in Israel is not just this set-apart people who's always doing good. We see this set-apart people who become selfish and arrogant and corrupt and wicked and rebellious and blaming and jealous 
and anger. The people who were the solution to the problem become part of the problem. And this good world, this good creation that was supposed to be set back in place by this group of people, Israel, forgets its vocation, forgets its calling, forgets its purpose, and begins to live like everyone else. This world that was created in the image of its creator, this creation created in the image of its creator, loses its identity and purpose. And so this week I want to look at a question. And the question is this, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? I mean, because the easy answer, well, to Rome, he was a threat to security. To the Jewish leaders, maybe his conduct in the temple. To the disciples, they let him down. Or even Jesus' answer that that was his purpose, that was his vocation, that was his calling. That was the reason he came. But I want to look at the question a little bit differently than just why simply did Jesus die? But the bigger question, for God's purposes, for God's purposes, why did Jesus have to die? Because our typical answer, the one we kind of turn to, is that it was to rescue people from an evil world, ensuring them forgiveness in the presence and heaven hereafter. But the question is, I think, goes so much deeper than that. What if the answer to the question is not as simple and straightforward as we think, but so much broader, so much more beautiful than anything we ever imagined? So, Father, today we ask, as we open your word, As we look to the Gospels, we see the beauty of the cross. We see the beauty of Jesus. We see the glory of the resurrection. And Father, our eyes are open to your magnificent unfolding plan that is happening right here in our midst. So Father, today, bless us with fresh eyes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to answer this question, I want to turn to the Gospels. The the four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and look at what the Gospels have to say about the cross. Because the Gospels tell the story of how evil in the world, political, social, personal, emotional, and moral, all reach its climax. And it tells the story of how Jesus announces God's kingdom and went to his violent death on the cross. Because in the cross, what you have is this convergence of power. The political powers. The political powers reach their arrogant height in Rome, thinking that they can exert their will over everyone else. The powers reach their height in Israel and corruption from Israel. As they, in the council, refuse to acknowledge that someone else, that God is king, and say, we have no other king but Caesar. 
These people of God, these people who believe God is their king and sovereign and rules, now announce we have no other king but Caesar. And then there's this demonic force that seems to hover over creation. That seems to to have some sway and seems to have some power. And by the way, next week we're going to come back and we're going to dive completely into that little topic, the demonic and the power of Satan and what he's up to. So I want to encourage you um, to be back for that. Then the moral side. As people are trying to transverse this world and figure out how to live, and we tend to try to make it us versus them. Our, Our morality is so much rooted in, well, we're good and they're bad. And then the downward spiral of evil as it continues to get worse and worse, it seems, as you read the story. For Jesus, beginning with Peter's denial and Judas' betrayal, and maybe even climaxing with Caiaphas and Pilate. The cross is the personification of evil. The cross is the point where evil does its absolute worst. It reaches the height and the climax of power, and it crushes Christ on the cross as He stands and bears the full weight of sin. And so I want to look for just a few minutes in the Gospels as Jesus deals with and confronts evil. Um, And these are not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to kind of go um, and and talk about them. Hopefully some of these stories are familiar enough to you that you're going to be able to listen as we talk about and tell the story. But the first one, Jesus encounters a leper. As he's just finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he comes down from the mountain, a man with leprosy comes and he kneels before Jesus and he asks Jesus to heal him, to make him clean. And everyone knew in that society for Jesus or anyone else to touch a man with leprosy would make them unclean. But then some, in some miraculous fashion, Jesus reaches out and touches the leper. And instead of his leprosy and uncleanliness being transferred to Jesus, making him unclean, somehow the power that Jesus has transfers his cleanliness to the man with leprosy, and he is healed. Then there's a story of a woman who's been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And Jesus is on his way to, to heal the synagogue ruler's daughter. And as he's going, this woman comes crawling, probably on her hands and knees, making her way through the the crowd. And she reaches and she touches the cloak of Jesus' garment. And instantly, she is healed. Because to touch someone with blood would make you as well unclean. But yet Jesus is not made unclean. He transfers His cleanliness and His purity onto her, and she is healed. And Jesus asks, who who touched me? And the disciples said, Jesus, you see all these people crowding around you. How can you ask the question, who touched me? And Jesus says, no, no, I know that power went out from me. And they look here and there's a woman who says, it was me. He touched me. 
I touched the cloak of his garment and I was healed. And we see Jesus again cleansing what was unclean. And then Jesus is called to a house in Nain. And a large crowd is there. And Jesus approaches, and there there's a funeral procession. And a young son of this woman is dead. And Jesus went up and touched the stretcher. They were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. For a society, the things that you did not do was touch people with disease or bleeding or who were dead. Because to interact, to touch, would make you unclean as well. That you would have to be cleaned. But here Jesus reaches out and touches someone with a disease. He teaches, touches someone who is bleeding. He touches someone who is dead. And the uncleanliness is not transferred onto Him. But His holiness and purity is transferred onto them. And they are made clean. But it's not just the healings that we see the miraculous power of Jesus at work in the world. We also see it in the company that He keeps. For a a, a society that was so based around family and, and the relationship between mother and daughter and father and son... Jesus is in this place and He's talking to these people and His mother and brothers come and say, hey, we're here, we need to talk to Him. And Jesus says, who? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? But it's these people here gathered around me who do the will of my Father in heaven. And he redefines family by people who are committed to this kingdom life. There's a tax collector. His name is Zacchaeus. And he's a chief tax collector. He's hated and he's despised because in the eyes of the Jewish people, he has turned his back on a nation. And he is decided to be a part of what Rome is doing in taxing the Jewish people. And as Jesus and this procession is passing by, Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree to see Jesus, just to get a glimpse of Him. And Jesus stops the parade, and He looks and He points up in a tree at this sinful man that everyone despised and no one wanted to be a part of, and said, Zacchaeus, you come down here with me because I need to stay at your house today. And as He enters into the house, He pronounces that today salvation has come to this house. And it's not the priest's. 
And it's not the religious leaders that he looks down on and he has pity. It's this tax collector who's despised and who's an outcast. And he says, come, I'm going to be a part of your life. And today, salvation has come. And then, he dies upon a cross, not exalted as a king, but he dies with rebels, with common criminals, men who had started an insurrection, an uprising against Rome. He dies as a common, petty criminal with their shame, with their guilt. See, evil, through the story of the cross, falls fully on Jesus. And again, not just in some esoteric up here idea. But when it talks about Jesus bearing the full weight of sin, understand it's the full weight of the arrogance, of the selfishness, of the corruption, of the wickedness, of the rebellion, of the blame, of the jealousy, of the anger that comes down on him. And it reaches his height through the political powers, the corruption of Israel, through the demonic, the moral Decay in the downward spiral of evil. And it all comes crushing down on Jesus as he bears the full weight of Israel's sin and thus the sins of the whole world. See, Jesus begins his gospel in Matthew with a sermon. With a message about God's new kingdom and what that kingdom will look like. And he begins as he teaches his disciples to say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He he begins to announce this new kingdom, and then he describes what Israel's new kingdom is. The people of God are supposed to look like. That they're going to be a light to this world. They're going to be the salt of the earth. They're going to be a city that's set upon a hill for all to see. They're going to not return evil with hate and anger. And they're not going to commit adultery and turn their back on its first love. And they're not going to divorce and they're going to keep their oath. And they're not going to hate their enemy, but they're going to love their enemy. And they're going to turn the other cheek. And they're going to go the second mile. This is what Israel was called to be. They were called to represent to the people what God is like. 
you will be a nation set apart. And through your life and through your living, this world will get to see a picture of who God is. It was the vocation, it was the calling of Israel to be this light, to be this city on a hill set apart. And there with the sermon on the mount fresh on our mind, we begin to see the Son of Man bringing judgment and setting the world right. We see victories over evil and declaring forgiveness of sins, suspending Sabbath regulations and cleansing the temple and bringing God's rule and reign to the world. And we see the suffering servant from Isaiah. We see the suffering servant living out Israel's calling and vocation as he goes to a cross as he takes all the sin, all the shame, all the blame, all the accusation upon himself. And he dies not just for the sins of Israel, but because of the sins of Israel. But in this, we get this glorious and beautiful picture of Jesus living out the calling that Israel was always supposed to. Because on the cross we see Christ turning the other cheek. We see Him taking up the cross and going the extra mile. We see Him as a light placed upon a hill for all to see a new city and a new nation. We receive Him not responding to the hate with hate, but with love and forgiveness. We see Him keeping His oath. We see Him loving His enemy. We see Him embodying the very people that Israel was called to be. That the accuser, the Satan, had led astray. And on the cross, Jesus embodying the very sermon that he preached. And all of the weight of all of the sin crushes Jesus. In the cross, Jesus fully embodies the people that Israel was called to be. See, the cross stands as the definitive moment in Jesus' life where Jesus is revealed as God, the supreme revelation of who God is. And on the cross, Jesus does not come to save you from God. Jesus comes to reveal God as Savior. Jesus shows up to show us 
who God is and who Israel was called to be. It's in the cross that we don't just see what God does, we see who God is. And the ugliness of the cross is found in human sin, but the beauty of the cross is found in divine, divine forgiveness. So many times we want to make it God who is crucifying Jesus. But understand, Jesus came to reveal God as Savior. To show you what God is like. If you'll remember back, it's not God who is crying, crucify Him, crucify Him. But it is the crowd, it is humanity that's saying, crucify Him. We demand His blood. We demand His death. It is humanity demanding the death of Jesus. But it is God offering divine forgiveness. Because on the cross where evil does its worth, where it casts its shadow and darkness covers the earth. It's the voice of Jesus that says, Father, Father, forgive them because they don't understand. They don't know what they're doing. In Corinthians, chapter Five of Second Corinthians. Paul says this, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and who was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us this message of reconciliation. How how was it that he was reconciling the world to himself? By not counting people's sins against them. By saying to the people who were hanging him there, Father, forgive them. The cross shows the beauty 
and the glory and the majesty of what divine forgiveness looks like. And he calls his people, the people who would follow him, not just to accept that divine forgiveness, but to themselves embody it, to become it, to offer it in the same way that Christ has forgiven you. Jesus is what God has to say. If if you want to see the most perfect and clear picture of who God is, simply look at Jesus. Jesus is who is what God has to say. It's what God has to say to our selfishness, to our arrogance, to our corruption, to our wickedness, to our rebellion, to our blame, to our jealousy, to our anger that we want to pose and put against them. And Christ steps down into the center of us versus them. And he says it's not about us versus them. It's about all people becoming the embodiment of Israel. It's the church becoming who they were supposed to be from the beginning. Who Israel was supposed to be. Who creation was supposed to be. Now that you understand the calling, go and live like it. See, I think better than than ever, the Gospels explain why the resurrection had to happen. I think so many times we look at the resurrection as just another miracle that happens in the story of the Gospels. But the resurrection is not just some arbitrary miracle. It is the appropriate and proper response to Jesus' death or proper result. Because to enter this world on the other side of the garden is to enter into death. There, There is no way to escape that. To enter this world is to enter into death. And what Jesus does through the cross is Jesus dies and He enters death and He fills death with Himself so that in death all we find is Christ. And it is the reason that resurrection has to happen. Resurrection has to happen because the result of sin, Paul tells us, but also Genesis tells us, is death. And to live a perfect life, to not be overtaken by sin, means that sin cannot hold you in the grave. So to live in this life, this life that is full of death and decay, And to be perfect and sinless means that in death, death cannot hold you down. Because the wage of sin was death. The result of sin, if you eat this fruit from the tree that I've commanded, it's death. 
So listen. The proper result of the death of a perfect and sinless man is resurrection. But when we say resurrection, we also have to say forgiveness of sins. Because you cannot be resurrected without forgiveness of sins. Because they are one and the same thing. To be resurrected means you are not held captive any longer by death. The only way that that can happen is not be overcome by sin. It is in the cross that Jesus sets you free, not just from your personal sin, but from the power of sin as it does its worst. And He invites you to come live life. That that is what repentance is. We want to make repentance some bad thing that we hang over people's head with guilt. But repentance in its truest sense is an invitation You've been living in death. You've been living in despair. Here is the invitation. Come to life. Stop living in death. Stop making your life about selfishness and arrogance and a rebellion and wickedness. Come and find life in me. And you find it through divine forgiveness is Jesus takes the weight of our sin, he takes the shame, and he goes to a cross, and Isaiah says, by his stripes, you are healed. Because God shows up. The incarnate Son of God shows up. To show you what it looks like to be the people he's called you to be. And maybe the toughest act that we have on the other side of the water. Because we, we believe that the water is where we encounter the blood. We believe it's where we choose to die ourselves and be resurrected. And if we are resurrected, that means we are forgiven of our sin. It means we are set free. It means we are clothed in Christ. But to be clothed in Christ means that we will now live like Him. So when we die to ourselves in the water, what we're saying is now we're going to live like Christ. And we're not going to live like ourselves any longer. We're not going to live like humanity that's been led astray by the Satan, by the accuser that's tempted humanity and pulled him and seduced him. That now we're going to live set apart in freedom from sin. That is what it means to be resurrected. And now sin no longer has power over you. I don't know about you, 
but to me, that sounds like good news. It means that you are set free. It means on the other side of the water, we are now co-creators of this new kingdom. We now begin to embody the very calling of Israel and thus the church. As we are called to be a city on a hill. A light to the world. As we're called to turn the other cheek and go the second mile. As we're called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Because in that, this world will see something different in the church. That the church is not just a group of people that shows up once a week to sing some songs and listen to a message. But the church is the people who embody the calling of Israel and Jesus. And our voice is heard through our actions and through our life as we look different from everyone else. Stop living in fear. Stop pretending. And start embodying the very message of Jesus that we say we profess as we come out of the water. That we are a light. We are forgiving. We are loving. And in us, in this church, people find grace and forgiveness and mercy because that's what Jesus gave to us. Church, go and be the people Jesus has called you to be. And I promise you, they will see something different. They will see life where death seems to be closing in. Father, today, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for mercy. Father, we thank you that we're set free, not just from our personal, but, Father, from the power of sin that it no longer has its grip. As we are resurrected, Father, we find forgiveness. And sin no longer has a hold. Death does not own us. We are no longer a slave to it. We have been set free from it. And Father, in the cross, we see Jesus, the perfect revelation of who you are. Father, help us not just simply to accept that forgiveness, but, Father, to embody it and live it. And, Father, may we always see the beauty, the majesty, and the glory of the cross. And, Father, the hope that we find in and through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have never entered into the water, died and been resurrected, raised to new life and been forgiven of your sin, clothed in Christ, we offer you the invitation. Come, not, not to us, but to Him. And lay down who you are. Be born again. That is always the invitation. If we could simply pray for you as well, we're going to have ministry staff, shepherds, 
around the back of the auditorium. Whatever we could do to help you in your journey as you follow Jesus, come while we stand and sing. There's a 